chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read down through verse 29. And here's what the word of the Lord says. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. The book of Genesis, as we're studying through it, don't forget the word Genesis literally means beginnings. And so we are learning as we study through the book of Genesis what Moses was intending to teach his people as they were coming out of Egyptian slavery about the beginnings, about who they are, where they came from, and how things got to be in the messed up state that they are in. But also how God rescues his people from that messed up state. So what we see all the way through Genesis, and you'll see it for the rest of your Bible, and this is the theme the New Testament is going to pick up on, and that is darkness and light. And so you're going to see these contrasted all the way through our study in Genesis. Darkness, what sin has done, what sin and rebellion against God has absolutely wrecked. But you're going to see light. You're going to see what God does about it. And so what we're going to see today in this passage is the darkness of what sin has done. Because you're going to see that again all through the Bible. And darkness is that side of the work of the counter little petty kingdom of the enemy Satan. Light is the kingdom of God. And so we're going to see the darkness of what sin has done. But we're also going to see the light of what God is going to do. What he has done. What he's doing. And what he is going to do. So we start out with the darkness component. What has sin done? Well we start there because that's where the text picks up. So we've got a few points under darkness. That we want to draw our attention to. And some application from Then we've got a couple of points under light, and we'll draw some application from those as well. So let's start where the text starts, and that is chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. We see that Noah, who has been made right by faith, still wrestles with the curse of sin. So they get off the boat, and we see in verse 20 and 21, Noah, like Adam began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. Nothing wrong with that. He drank. Nothing wrong with that. He became drunk. Problem. And then lay in his tent uncovered. So we see that Noah made right by faith. You remember we made a big deal of this because it's vital right here. God didn't choose Noah because he's good. The Bible makes a point 
that its characters, the people, the historical figures inside are not the heroes. We have a tendency to make them heroes or make them ethical examples. That's not the point. The point of their existence in the text is to teach us who the hero is. And the hero is not Noah. Noah was just part of everybody else. He was as fallen and broken as everybody else. But by God's favor and in God's choice, God put His favor on Noah, chapter 6, verse 8. And then chapter 6, verse 9, Noah began walking with God. Noah didn't walk with God because he's good. Noah walked with God because God is good. And so we see here that Noah, being a son of the fall, is not the hero. In fact, Noah, made right by faith, still wrestles with the curse of sin. Which is why we will never hold up the characters of Scripture as ethical examples. That's not what they're there for. They are there... To show us, and Paul will write about this in Corinthians, he writes about this in Romans. That they are there to point us to the glorious work of God to save sinners who don't deserve to be saved. And so we see here Noah, who looks like a great hero because he obeyed the Lord, is simply, like you and I, someone who is desperately broken. In other words, there's no perfect people. And the point of the text is to show us a perfect example. Because the perfect example alone is the Lord. We see in the characters of the Bible broken people who are powerfully used by God in spite of their brokenness. Which is why when we read the text of Scripture, it's intimately and powerfully relatable. Because there's nobody there who's a hero. They're broken And so we start to understand from the very beginning of this account, post-flood, that even the most holy and powerfully used people by God, even among us today, still wrestle with sin and they fail. Which is why none of us should ever hold any Christian up on a pedestal as an example. There's one example, and that example is King Jesus. Which is why Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 2. He sets Jesus up as the example they strive for. Not Paul, not Epaphroditus, not Titus, not Peter, not John. None of those. But Jesus is the example. So we begin to see even the very beginning of the story. Noah gets drunk, gets naked, lays in his tent. And this situation is birthed for bad things. So we see that even the most holy and powerful people among us still wrestle with sin and they're going to fail, which is why we don't set our hopes on being like anybody in this room. You never set your hope on being like a pastor, being like a leader in this church. You never set your hope on those people. They will fail you. I will fail you miserably. You set your hope on Christ, who is the example. And so understand and know that people in this fellowship will fail you and you will fail each other. Because the most holy and powerful among us are still wrestling with the curse of sin in our broken bodies. This is why we have to learn to lean on this good news the Bible calls the gospel. That God didn't save Noah by his works in the first place. Now we would have a problem here if God picked Noah because Noah was good. But we learned early on it wasn't because Noah was good. It's because God is good. And he took a sinner, Noah, and he gave him a whole new set of desires, even though he would wrestle with his flesh. And we remember that when we fail, our righteous standing isn't built upon my good works. They are built upon God and God alone. 
So we see that Noah, even made right by faith, still wrestles with the curse of sin. The second thing we see in this passage, in the beginnings, as we understand how things got so broke and why they're so broke, but what God does about it, we see here in verse 22, 23, the first part, and in verse 24, that Ham, unfortunate, he got named Ham. Ham sins by publicly and shamefully dishonoring his father. Ham sins by publicly and shamefully dishonoring his father. This public shaming becomes aware to us in verse 23. Now, if you'll pardon me, let me nerd for a second. This is, I got, I'm a graduate degree in biblical languages, so I, I got the text, okay? So I think you guys know that, you trust me, alright? So, as I'm studying through this passage, I start to discover, as reading verse 23, that the word garment has an indefinite article in front of it. You see that? You know what an indefinite article is? It's A, not the. The is the definite article, right? And the difference between those two grammatically is really night and day. Every English translation I come across and have looked in uses a garment. Now, when I translate this passage, and yes, I did translate it. I still use my Hebrew skills because my professor taught me if you don't use it, you lose it. Right? So I try to use those skills. And so, translate the passage. It is not a garment in the text. It is definite article, the garment. Now, all all translation carries a matter of interpretation. It's just part of the discipline. And, and this has impact on how you interpret what Ham did. Now, we see this as a public shaming because his two brothers carry the garment. Meaning this was Noah's garment. So when he got drunk and got naked in his tent, his garment was laying there. Ham goes in and when he comes out, he brings the garment. Meaning he brought Noah's garment out. So when his brothers go backward not to look with it on them, it's the garment. Meaning they are taking Noah's clothes that his brother brought out to show them to cover him up. In other words, he came out and said, hey, look what daddy did. Look, here's daddy clothes, right? And so we see him as publicly shaming and dishonoring his father. Now the question for us becomes, and this is where I encouraged you and put it on the Facebook and had Pastor Justin said on the front end, if you've got little ones who don't want to catch implications, I'm not going to be explicit because this isn't the right place to be explicit, but they may catch the implications, okay? So you just got to deal with the text, all right? Got to deal with the text. Now on the notes, on the blog, I put a hyperlink here, okay? You can link to read this article. And I found this article because I had to go look to a Jewish rabbi who's friends of a friend of mine. In Houston, Texas. Because every place I looked ignored some of the exegetical options. Every Christian commentary says this could have happened, but it really didn't. And so they translated A rather than B. But the scripture's language is kind of clear. And so I went and I, I had an opportunity to speak to this friend who connected me to this rabbi. And I read his commentary from the Hebrew and found that I think there are a few Christian scholars who go in this direction, and I think they're right. So let me give you the options of what Ham did, okay? Number one, here's what Ham possibly did. Ham was just simply reveling in his father's drunken and uncovered state, making light of it publicly, and he shamed him. And he shamed him. Period. Option number two is Ham did something to his father in that tent and came out and shamed him with that 
activity. Which would make sense in verse 24 when he says, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. It also makes sense that the language of seeing his nakedness is the exact same language we find in Leviticus 18 when Moses is warning them about Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, and their sexual practices. You go read Leviticus 18, and it's this same language, seeing the nakedness of. It's the same thing that happened a lot in Genesis 19. And the third option is Ham did something with his mother. Those are our three options. The text really isn't super clear, but you need to know those options are there. What is clear, however, is that Ham publicly shames his father and dishonors him in front of the world. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because Moses is going to tell them Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. You know what that says? Remember, Moses, who's writing this account to show them how things got so messed up, why they're messed up, and how God is going to fix it, also gives gives them this commandment in the ten. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. In other words, one of the blights of the curse is the broken relationship familially, familially between parents and children. One of the ways the enemy is going to seek to destroy the good order God put together is by destroying relationships. And so this is obviously an issue among the Canaanites of whom Ham is their father. And they're coming into the land now to be there among those people. And what they're going to discover is what they're doing is going to be a temptation for us to do. So Moses is letting them know, this is what you're going to encounter. Be careful. Paul writes to Timothy that when we come upon the end of days at the coming of Christ, this is what it's going to begin to look like. We're going to have this familial tension where children are awful and parents are awful and families are wrecked and families are broken. And although the text doesn't address how to approach an awful parent of which the text doesn't address, and that's not the point this morning, I don't want you to ever hear come out of my mouth that if you had an awful parent, it's okay, because it's not. It's not. What it does address, however, is my response to my parents, whether they were good or awful. And my response needs to be that of honor. Ephesians 6, 1-3 says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. In the instance of perhaps an awful parent, they should get what justice brings to them and they should get whatever public shame comes to them because of their activity. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean me as a son needs to heap on it and bring any more than justice brings. But what we see here is the example... Now remember, Noah, this is not good. Noah started all this. It began with Noah. But what we see two sons doing is not piling on, but seeking to cover up. Not from justice, but just to honor the public image of the father. And so what he's addressing to them as children 
You should seek the repair of as best you possibly can by honoring them. Now, why does that matter? Because Moses gave this commandment because of who's standing behind the commandment. Who's standing behind the commandment? God's standing behind the commandment. Why did God give parents? God gave parents to show and put on display God in His Trinitarian nature. So that as parents parent properly, as they parent biblically, children learn relationally how to relate to God. And that is to worship. Not We don't worship our parents, but, but we make that leap into the vertical relationship. We're to honor our parents. And honoring our parents, we learn to worship God by honoring Him, by adoring Him, and then worshiping Him appropriately. So the reason this matters is because God is behind the commandment. He's the one who created families. He's the one who created the family unit. And when sin breaks it, when sin destroys it, we are to seek its repair. And so therefore, addressing simply the children in this instance, it's not our place to publicly shame and pile on And as a result of Ham's sin, there's far-reaching consequences, which is our third point from verse 25. Verse 25 said, when Noah awakes and he understands what has happened to him, whether it's one of those three options, he said, cursed be Canaan. He said, whoa, Canaan, Canaan didn't do anything. You read that, the first thing that should pop into your mind is, wait a second, Canaan didn't do this. Shouldn't it say, curse be him? A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Why Canaan? Because sin has far-reaching consequences. You've heard us say this before, right? Sin is never isolated to the individual. It's always genetic and atmospheric. See, this is part of the deceptive nature of sin. The day you eat of it, you won't die. It's just between you and me. I know God said, but I say to you, that's not going to happen. Right? You remember that conversation from the garden? And we believe errantly that if I can just isolate my sin to me, everything's okay. The problem is, we can never isolate our sin to ourselves. Because it is always either genetic or atmospheric. Noah likely, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because this is inspired scripture, prophetically sees in Ham's son Canaan what he has seen and experienced in Ham. In other words, Canaan is already walking in the footsteps of his father. This this is why in that same passage, Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, Moses is also going to write verse 5 and 6. Here's what he says. Speaking of idols, you don't bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So you're telling me that Ham's sin affected his son? Yes, I'm telling you that. Because the text tells us that's what happens. 
You see, the lie is, it's just about me. The scriptures say, it's never just about me. It's always about everybody else. Because just like rebellion at the tree affects you and me today, Ham's sin in that tent and what he did when he came out and shamed his father affects you and me today as well. And the immediate effect we see in chapter 10, which it's a genealogy, you begin to see in chapter 10, particularly verse 6 through verse 20, the descendants of Ham are people like Babel. Chapter 11, continued rebellion against God. You're going to see people like Sodom, Gomorrah, the Jebusites, who they're going to have to fight later. In other words, sin always produces fruit that affects everybody else. Therefore, we understand that sin is genetic and atmospheric. So what do we do with that? Well, here are three Things we can do. Number one, kill sin. Kill sin. Kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin. See, the Bible teaches that Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies, Jesus called him. And anytime we think in our mind and our heart and believe in our soul something contrary to scripture, guess who is putting that there? The deceiver. The teacher of lies. And the idea that I can keep my sin isolated to me and it won't affect anybody else is a lie. And so Paul will give this instruction in Romans 8, 12 to 13. And remember, the New Testament authors are just preaching the Old Testament text. I mean, they're not making things up. They're preaching from these passages. And Paul will say in Romans 8, 12 to 13, So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, kill sin. He wrote that to a group of Christians at a church called Rome, Italy. In other words, Christians, you're going to wrestle with sin like Noah did, but your job is to put it to death. Fight it. Come against it. Do what you have to do to beat it because sin kills. It won't only kill you, it'll kill everybody around you. It'll kill your children. You know the sad thing in me? I watch my failures show up in my son's. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about because you see it too, don't you? The very thing you wish you wouldn't have passed on, you did. And it grieves me many days going, how did I pass that on? I look at myself and I judge my parents. And then I look in the mirror and go, you do the same thing, Jolly. Put the judgment away. Because sin is atmospheric and genetic and we affect others when we don't put it to death. And so Moses is telling his people here, look, look, this is not going to work out for anybody for the next 500 years. So, kill it. Sin will affect our children, it will affect the people around us, so therefore we learn to seek repentance, not hiding the sin. We seek to drag it. People who know me and people I, I mentor in ministry and, and folks in this church who, who, who are, you, they will hear me say this when we have to deal with something. Drag it kicking and screaming into the light. 
drag it kicking and screaming into the light because light kills darkness. The gospel destroys sin. And what's the first thing we want to do when we sin is what? Hide it. And the Bible teaches us don't hide it, confess it, drag it kicking and screaming and it will kick and scream on you. And every justification known to man, you can think, you can use Bible passages to keep it hidden. That's how hard the deception works. And we see this in Matthew 4 when Satan comes to tempt Jesus. He starts quoting Bible to Jesus. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even misquote it. He quotes it exactly. Here's where the error comes. He misapplies it to Jesus. And this is where Bible study gets tricky. Satan teaches the wrong application of the text to Jesus. The difference, Jesus wrote the text. Which is why Jesus applies it properly back to Satan. So the challenge for us isn't, okay, I know the Bible, we need to, but then we need to know how to begin to apply it because Satan will not teach you the truth. He will teach you a misapplication of the truth. So what you can do is you can start using Bible to justify keeping your sin hidden. But if I say that, it's going to affect this person. I don't want them to be affected. Not true. If you keep it hidden, you will die. Right? Drag it kicking and screaming into the light. This third little application here. And this, this made sense in my mind, so hopefully it will make sense in your mind. Sin doesn't have any brakes. Sin's brakeless. I had a motorcycle, I had motorcycles my whole life growing up, and there was one instance, one instance where the brakes on my bike failed, and I have a partially replaced knee as a result of that. And you ever been on something, the brakes don't work? Mm. Panicky. Listen, sin doesn't have any brakes. We think, well, just a little bit, and then I'll stop. There's no stopping because it doesn't have any brakes. There are no brakes on sin. There's no pumping the brakes and stopping. It will consume. It will produce other sin. It will lead to further rebellion. As a matter of fact, we are taught in the Bible this principle God wove into created order that whatever a person sows, they will... It is what it is. Sin has no brakes, so we've got to kill it. Well, what's the light part? That's enough of the darkness. What does God do about this, right? Well... Here's what God does. We see it in chapter 9, verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. We see here that the Lord exalts Himself through Shem. The Lord exalts Himself through Shem. Now that sounds tricky. But this language here is absolutely key to understanding one of the most glorious gospel realities you will ever understand in the Bible. The language of this passage, now follow me here, okay, I'm going to say this slow. Alright, just follow this. The language of this passage, because notice, shouldn't it say, blessed be Shem who worships the Lord? Right? He obeyed. Shouldn't the Lord say, blessed be Shem? If Shem maybe were something to be imitated. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. The language here subordinates Shem to the Lord. 
and, and this, this, this goes back to the whole point of why we don't worship or hold up as ethical examples the people in the Bible. We don't hold up Noah as an example. Who's the hero? God's the hero. So it's not because Noah didn't get saved because Noah was good. Noah got saved because God put his favor on him. Right? Shem doesn't get blessed because Shem did good. Shem receives blessing because God is God and Shem is not. The language subordinates Shem to the Lord, thus exalting the Lord Jesus as Shem's God with whom he is walking in covenant relationship with. Let me say it another way. Shem's blessing was not in being blessed. This is a good idol inside post-Christian Southern Christianity. Blessed. I'm blessed. What does that mean even? What does that even mean? I'm blessed. Do you mean by that you have a lot? If so, why do believers who don't have a lot in other places in the world say, I'm blessed? Because they don't mean I have a lot. They ain't got nothing. Shem's blessing was not in being blessed. Rather... Than cursed. But Shem's blessing was in being the Lord's object of affection and mercy. The blessing's not in what God did for Shem. The blessing is in simply being the Lord's. God does something cool here. When God subordinates Shem to himself, he unites Shem to his name. He unites Shem to his identity. Which is why later in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 36, the Lord is going to say to them, you have wrecked my reputation among the nations. Why? Because they were called by his name. So that what they did reflected on him and he said, i got to send you away for a while till you learn your lesson. God unites His name to Shem, meaning Shem carries God and His name and all the good things that come with being the Lord's so that God's reputation rides on how Shem now begins to deal with people around Him and He carries the blessing of knowing the Lord. Another way to say this is God's worship is the great end in His blessing and advancing this redeemed human called Shem. Another way to say this is, God saved Shem so that Shem could worship the Lord. God didn't save Shem because he was good. He saved Shem because God's good and he intends for Shem to give him praise. The great end of God's salvation is not just so that you can be saved, it's so that you can worship him. You can make much of him. You can exalt him in song and in the things you say and in the lives we live. Which is why we talk way back a few months ago about worship, that it is communion with God, in which believers by grace center their minds, attention, hearts, affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to the revelation of His glory and His majesty. Right? It's a life we live, and we live that life. We come and sing the songs, because that's why God saved us. Listen, if we are in Christ, here's some quick application. If we're in Christ, there's no further blessing needed. This is the danger of living here in, in a prosperous place. I struggle with this every single day. I think if, and I say this almost daily, wrestling through stuff. 
raising three teenage boys and my goodness gracious, they're expensive. And there's a constant need for something that we just don't have. And I know I'm not, you, you all are in the same boat. And I'm, te- I'm tempted to always think, Lord, where have I failed? Why, why don't I have more? What did I do wrong? And the reality is I've begun to worship things, not the Lord. Because if I'm in Christ, there's no further blessing needed. Shem didn't need anything else. Everything Shem would ever need would come from knowing the Lord. And if there was lack, it's because Shem didn't need it. <laughs> and the Lord teaches this. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 6. It's not a mystery. If I'm in Christ, there's no further blessing needed. We have the very riches of heaven. Ephesians 2, 7. I gave you some passages here on the block. The immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Where am I rich? I'm, in, I'm rich in favor with God. He loves me. And he, he has made me to love Him. And I have all available knowledge of God at my fingertips. That's what God calls rich. Ephesians 3.8, that we're called to preach to the Gentiles. And this is going to transition us here in a second. Who are Ham's descendants, right? Because God's not going to forget Ham. we got chapter 11 coming up. And then chapter 12. God's not going to forget Ham. Jesus is going to come and die in our place for our sin and be buried and on the third day rise for salvation for all those who will repent and believe, including us Gentiles who are Ham's descendants. Listen, do you understand that you're Ham's descendants? We're all sons of Ham. Unless you came from Abraham genetically, we're all sons of Ham. So God's not going to forget us, right? But what we have is this glorious gospel to preach to Ham's folks, the unsearchable what? Riches of Christ. Jesus is the riches. Alright? And I have oodles more passages I don't have time to give you. So that if we carry Christ, Christian, we carry God's name and reputation. If you're in Christ... You carry His name and reputation, which is another reason we have to learn to kill sin. Because when we don't, we put a bad rap on Jesus' name. We're called in Christ to then be worshipers who give God glory. Finally, last point. Chapter 9, verse 27. I'll make this quick. He says, may God enlarge Japheth. God will enlarge, grow his people. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The Lord blesses Japheth by including him in Shem. This is where we see a, a, a gospel work here. The Lord blesses Japheth by including him in Shem. And his descendants will come to the Lord. Just wrote here in my notes, see Isaiah 66, 19 to 20. You don't have time to go there, but go see it. You see, Japheth gets to be included in the blessing of Shem. That is, he gets to be included in knowing the Lord and finding his blessing in the Lord like Shem and through Shem. Meaning, and this is key, Shem is a vehicle. For Japheth and for the nations to know the Lord. 
And I said, see Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. Because it even looks forward to Ham's descendants, some of them coming to faith in the Lord as well. In other words, Shem doesn't save, but Shem has a role of ambassador that is real. And it points others to how they get to know the Lord. So that through his work, they come into the knowledge of God. Does anybody smell evangelism? Smell the Great Commission? Shem's not the gospel. Nobody gets saved by Shem. But Shem is a vehicle by which they come into the knowledge of God. Meaning, Shem's an ambassador. Shem's job is to tell the glory of the Lord. And we're going to see that God's going to call one of Shem's descendants, Abraham in chapter 12, to be the messenger of that message to all of Ham's descendants who he scatters in chapter 11. God begins to unfold his master plan. Meaning... In application, if we're in Christ, we get to be ambassadors for those outside the faith, coming into the faith, because we carry the good news. This, this is one of the reasons you hear, and we, don't, we hadn't preached on this in a while, it's time for a good mission sermon. This is why we planted 15 years ago working in hard places around the world and continue to spend inordinate amounts of money to see that the gospel goes to the nations. Because God's end is the nations. Not just Rome, Georgia. Rome, Georgia is a launching pad to the nations. And anything short of that is a waste. And I'm not being hyperbolic. The church exists to complete the task of seeing that all those descendants that God's going to scatter in chapter 11 hear the good news and have opportunity to respond. And over half the earth's population hasn't heard. Meaning we have a task in front of us and it's not just Rome, Georgia. It is that we would mobilize Rome, Georgia to go and tell this good news and be that ambassador so that through our preaching of the gospel they may come to know the Lord. And here's how Paul would say it and here's how we'll close. If you'll let me tell you a story. Because it's fun. Romans 10, 13 to 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious promise. If you call on the Lord, if you say, Jesus, will you save me? Guess what he'll do? Save you. Because he says everyone who calls will be saved. Right? How then, though, will they call on him whom they've not believed? It's a good question. How are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know what that means? Every single one of you, if you're in Christ, are that ambassador. You get to be like Shem. You get to be that one who goes and tells so that through your work, they get to come into the knowledge of Christ that you have. You have the richest thing on the face of the planet contained in Jesus Christ. And He is the message. And it's all of our tasks to preach that. <coughs> Close with this little story. I don't like to use example too much of myself because I'm a fool and I, I fail far too often. Um, but I love to share the gospel with people. And I like to share the gospel with people that aren't easy. That's just kind of my wiring. So you know about how I like to work with Muslims. and uh, I, I just like hard stuff. And so I don't see a ton of fruit, to be frank with you. Because I like to work with people. I don't know. It's just me. So anyway. And I'm weird. Just strange. 
about a month and a half ago, I went for a run behind uh, State Mutual Stadium. And uh, and I was, you know, if you've been along that trail, um, it's kind of places where it's isolated. And I, I, I'm, I'm running past, I really not run, it's more like a jog. <laughs> to be very frank, to be honest, it's more like a jog. So I'm about two and a half miles into this, going to be a four mile jog. And I see this guy that's coming toward me, a young African-American man. And he's got a bag and some headphones on. And he stops at a little bench and he starts warming up. And listen, I... I don't know as a Southern Baptist, I don't know how to say some things sometimes because I know we're weird and we're afraid of supernatural. So I'm just going to say it, okay? So I'm not going to try, I'm just going to say it. The Lord spoke to my heart to stop and talk to this guy. And I start arguing. I'm a white man talking to a, a young black man in the woods on a trail by the river. Like I start coming up with all these excuses why you shouldn't do this. What is some, what's he going to think? Is he going to be afraid? Does he think I have an ill intention? Like I start coming up with all this stuff, all this stuff, all this stuff. And I run past him. I speed up just to get by. I nod, kind of do the, or it's more the what's up kind of thing. And I get by and the Lord gets louder. You go back. To the point that it was effective. So I stopped. It was a good excuse to stop. And I turned around and I walked back. And I said, excuse me, sir. And he turned, he turned to me and said, yes. And I said, this is going to sound really weird, but the Holy Spirit just told me to stop and talk to you. Can I pray for you? Can I share with you about Jesus? <laughs> and so I did. And he starts telling me about some things. And so I pray with him. Two weeks ago, I got an email from him. He found me. And you know what he said? Wrestling through some stuff. Thank you for stopping to serve me. I don't know if he's believed the gospel or not. I don't have a clue. But you know what I got to be in that moment? Got to be like Shem. Be an ambassador. Be one who brought the message and perhaps a little good news that God cares. You know what? Let's just do that. Let's be that. Be like Shem. Not because he's the moral example, but because God took Shem and made him an ambassador and a blessing. And likewise, we get to be ambassadors and blessings as descendants of Ham, the other descendants of Ham. That they might hear and know this God who saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, take your word and produce good things uh, this morning in it. Uh, we ask that you would... Um, we ask that you would do a great thing in your people right now, that we would uh, be worshipers in song, and that when we walk out of here too, we would be worshipers in the lives that we live. And so, Lord, I, um, I ask that you pull that off this morning. We ask for your grace, just abundant in this time, Lord. If, if someone needs to uh, needs to, to pray, uh, needs to needs to become a Christian this morning, I ask, Lord, you'd be effective and work in that powerfully. And um, and Lord, I pray if uh, if uh, if we just need to be encouraged, that a heart needed to be lifted up, you would do that. And I pray, God, that you would, and all of us, bring us to worship. That we would be people who are blessed in you. That our blessing is found in knowing you and carrying your name and then worshiping you. So Lord, help us to worship now. Be glorified in that. Be exalted. Be lifted high. And uh, make our joy be rich. 